Hi. There is so much I want to tell you. And... It's hard to know where to start, but I think I... I think I have a starting place for today. There's a story that I want to tell you, and there are so many intersections and layers and other stories in it, but I think I think I've isolated or identified the part of the story that I want to tell today. So we'll start there. But I realized that to tell the story, I there's some groundwork that I have to lay for the story to make sense or um, there some of the streams of mm-hmm, some of the perspectives through which I'm seeing this part of the story of my story need a little explanation ahead of time, I think, so that I don't have to step out of the story once I'm telling it to explain. And the groundwork that I want to lay for this story is also groundwork for story, all stories going forward and um, some pieces of hmm, my lens work that I want have wanted to share anyway lenses and wisdom and perspective and uh yeah I guess how I how I see things so yeah lens work I like that word okay so um first I want to tell you a little bit about how I see the Enneagram I've mentioned this particular perspective, I think, a little bit in previous episodes, but I want to say a little more. And then a little piece from human design that corresponds to a little piece from neuroscience that is actually it. I mean, these are all like really big, but hopefully they, they're not really big to explain. But in my life, they are really, really big and worth mentioning. And... um I hope maybe they will help you too or add to your lens work. So let's see. Um, Okay, so the Enneagram. Before I, as I've been preparing to record this to tell you another story, I've noticed this recurring impulse to um, research to validate maybe to to find validation and citations for ideas that are coming through my mind that I want to share or particular language to make sure that I'm getting it right and I've resisted that um each time resistance isn't quite the right word I've let it go yeah I just I just keep letting that impulse go by because it's not a deep impulse it's a mental impulse an impulse from my mind that says I could be wrong. I can't say things that are wrong. If my message isn't accurate, then people are going to throw out the whole thing and dismiss me, you know, blah, blah, blah. But this is, I've 
committed to sharing how I see things and how language forms around ideas for me. So this all evolves and changes and I will update it if I need to with or without calling attention to it in the future. And I may listen back to this or hear it come back internally later and think, oh, that's not how I see things. I didn't say that accurately. And so be it. But this is where it is today. This is how the language is coming through. So that impulse to research ahead of time or to have my citations ready, that is um, one of what I call or what I think of internally, and I'm putting language to it, an Enneagram eddy, or for me, a five eddy, because where I get stuck the most is 0.5 and 0.4, that little existential gap between 0.5 and 0.4, which I think is just a, a beautiful term for a beautiful shape. The existential gap or the existential hole uh, is the space between the four points four and five in the Enneagram, where mind and body meet. So it's a gap, but there are bridges. So the eddies, when... When I think of eddies, I think it's self-explanatory. Not self-explanatory, but I think it might be really clear. But I also realize that not everybody is used to using that word or thinking about rivers as much as I do. So an eddy is a term that I did not look up before talking right now. Um, So this might be wrong in the communal sense, but this is what's true for me. So an eddy is a place in a river where the flow, the current, um, turns in on itself, but not in the middle of a river, not like a, a whirlpool. So it it's at the edge of a river where water flows out and the shape of the earth there turns the river back on itself so that there's this wow, this is hard to put words to and it's something so simple and so clear in my mind. Uh, this area of stagnation where um, it's like a little pool where the flow slows down and turns, turns, kind of gets circular. So I think of the places where I get in my own way as eddies where I get caught up in mental processing, these patterns where uh, I get stuck throughout my life. I could be a temporary eddy or a short-term eddy or a long-term eddy, but I think this is a very long-term eddy for me. I know this is a very long-term eddy for me, this research ahead of time, have my citations, have my ducks in a row. And I rarely do. I rarely have my ducks in a row in this sense, but I feel anxiety about that a lot of the time and it keeps me from sharing things. And I, 
in the past, I've done a lot of hedging before I share something. If I feel like I don't have all my citations in place uh, before sharing an idea or how something presents to me. And now I let that go, but I do still authentically use language like I think and for me, because that's important for people to know. Um, so this comes, this impulse to have to have all of the the validation in place before I share anything. It comes from my childhood experiences, which also inform my wound that create the big five eddy that, that have put me in the five place in the Enneagram. So the Enneagram of personality isn't like other personality systems that say, this is who I am, this is who I will be, this is the personality I was born with or, um, you know, was, was shaped into and it'll be this way for the rest of my life. The Enneagram of Personality says, this point is where I get stuck. And the more I can get to know the ways that I get stuck the the less stuck I'll be and the more I will float to the middle of the river, get into flow, which is the middle of the Enneagram, which is integration, which is channeling the parts of me, the parts of us, the parts of you that uh, each of the nine points represents. So we all have all nine channels, all nine personalities, all nine sides of the prism in us. It's just that we have one, two, three, we have a region where we get stuck. Um, For me, it's the four and the five and, you know, six a little bit, but I have a very, very strong four wing. So the more I understand my fiveness, the less five I am. But how I got to that place is a combination of my innate personality my soul as it was born into this being Monica or the part of my soul that was born into this being Monica and, you know, family heritage and how that interacts with that soul piece and my wound from early experiences. So the combination of those things put me in five wing four. And that's my biggest wound. Of course I've gathered other wounds, but my biggest wound from the time, the critical period, as we might say in human development and child development, in the first three years of life where I was laying down the groundwork for how I see the world and, and what I can expect from other people and who I am and all of these things that are felt senses before the left hemisphere sense of self 
narrative and mm, logical language memory comes in. All of that just kind of felt sense of the world when that was, when I was forming that for me, uh, I, the way that formed was in a way of the five, wing four. So that was my family and that was my experiences at school. That was the culture. At the time I was in Southern California with my family. So the culture there and the culture of my school or preschool, I guess, um, mommy and me, um, the culture of my family, the weather, the climate, particular interactions that had big impact on me, all of that. So my big Enneagram eddy is the five five and four eddies. So I'll refer to those. And then there are eddies within that. So this having research ahead of time eddy comes from these felt senses, these wordless foundations of how I learned to see the world, to be safe and to adapt. And... Um, I can also trace them back to particular experiences with my family. The majority of most people in my nuclear family have a very rational way of seeing the world. And I was always pushed to um, make things more rational. And um, what I would bring up would be often was dismissed or diminished or ridiculed. And that's for a variety of reasons that I understand more and more about. But there was always this push to make more sense. um, And I didn't make sense. So that was the message I was getting. I didn't make sense. I I wasn't part of the smart ones. I was not one of the smart ones in my family. And now I can see that story from a lot of different perspectives and hold it with compassion and understanding and for myself in that position and also the family members who uh, reinforced that story over and over again. But this feeling of, you know, if I bring something up, I have to have an expert to back it up. I have to have all of my sources ready And even then it could still be dismissed because those sources might be discredited or might be dismissed by people in my family who didn't want to believe or didn't want to take in or didn't want to hear the thing that I was saying, which could just be, I'm hurting, or it could be, that doesn't feel right to me, or I heard something about that thing that you said once, and this is what I heard. I know I'm being vague, but... I don't want to get into details, specifics right now, and I don't think it's important. This was supposed to be a small point. Let's see if we can get through everything I thought I would get through today. But it's important. Enneagram eddies. Okay. Getting out of that particular eddy where we just were and back into the stream. Uh, back, going back to what I mentioned briefly about um, brain development and two hemispheres or two ways of viewing. So there's the way of experiencing the world that we do mainly until around the age of three, and then things start to, to change and, um, 
are always changing after that, but change in a big way around three. And that is when the left hemisphere of the brain kind of hooks up in a big way, comes online, and we start encoding memories differently and putting language to things differently and having a different sense of self. So we feel more separate. Um, We, in this society, in this Western society in 2022 and in 1985 when I was born, um, there's this whole host of cultural and societal pressure that shapes our left hemisphere coming online in in that time period in a very particular way. And one of those is feeling, um, so I don't, I don't know what it's like in other cultures and other times, but here we start to feel very separate. We have a sense of ourselves as separate from our mom is separate from the people around us, um, our own identity and um, how other people view us start to get more concrete. We start to have language for things. We start to have distinct memories. So if you think back to your early memories, you might have a few kind of vague senses before age three or four, but then around then is when you start to have memories of um, more like memories that you can tell a story about. Okay. So there is so much beautiful, amazing research now from the last few decades about how the hemispheres of our brain shape how we see the world. Um, Jill Bolte Taylor comes to mind. If you haven't seen her Ted talk or read her book or heard her speak about her stroke and um, what it taught her about the two hemispheres. I I can't recommend that highly enough. Jill Bolte-Taylor, just phenomenal um, what she went through and shared and the words she puts to her experience. So there are so many other researchers too, but I wanted to share that. So what we know, what I understand is that the left hemisphere are the two hemispheres are the two hemispheres of our brains have a lot in common. They have a lot of mirrored structures where you know there is an amygdala on the left and amygdala on the right. Um, I'm sure you might have heard of the amygdala. It's gotten a lot of attention in the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, there are a lot of structures that where there is one on the left and one on the right, and they function differently, um, or they. They have different perspectives. So uh, I'm trying to not get into details here because I don't think that's particularly important. The way I'm seeing it now is that the left hemisphere houses um, kind of how society wants us to think and, and how our larger culture, our larger society views us as humans, which are what we, what we prize in this society, which is logic, linearity, um, language, there's this whole thing about the left has all the L's, but, um, it's your thinking self for, yeah, that's the best term I can think of right now. Your thinking self, your mental self. And then the right hemisphere has everything else. So I think of it now as my thinking self and my big self. So the right hemisphere processes, um, all of the streams of information coming in from your body and 
we're not just talking five senses, we're talking all the senses that come in before there's language to them and before we put them into this societal logic. So the ways that babies feel, the ways that babies view the world, the ways that pre-threes see the world, that's all like right hemisphere, their right hemisphere, our right hemispheres are processing all of these, like the felt sense of being alive and everything that that entails and then the left hemisphere during that time is growing and, and building connections. And then it comes on and it's like, okay, now let's put logic to this and language and organize everything. This is, this is chaotic. But that, that big self is still there and growing. And um, both hemispheres grow and connect in different ways. Your brain is always changing throughout your life. Um, so the thinking self and the big self. That'll come up a lot. So um, the term that keeps coming back to me of how I want to describe this is two streams. So the two streams. So I might refer to the two streams or two hemispheres or just shorten it to right and left in future speakings. Um, what else did I want to say about that? Something just came to mind. Hold on. Oh, one way that I like that I've heard um, our Western society talked about um, or our, our, the perspective of our cultural pressure is left shifted. So we're, and that's what I was talking about earlier, that we have a culture that is very, very focused on reinforcing the perspective of the left hemisphere. And that was... Um, represented in a huge way in my nuclear family. We are very sensitive. People in my family are very sensitive to cultural pressure. Who isn't? We all are. We're part of it. Um, and that aligned with this, this desire for things to be very rational, very, very rational. Okay. So two streams, left shifted society, right shifted self. I have been deepening into my right hemisphere's perspective for so long and I think part of my disconnect with my nuclear family was this sense that um from the get-go that I um that left shift wasn't comfortable for me but I kept having to go there or my family kept saying this is where your value is to us shift left shift left shift left and I'm as I get more distance from them and reconnect to them in deeper ways. It's because I'm saying, oh, shift right, shift right, shift right. This is my home. This feels good. And then as I do that, the left becomes an ally and not an alternative or an opponent or a, a space that feels bad. It becomes with, when I inhabit my big self, my right hemisphere more and more, that perspective and that feeling, all those feelings, the left hemisphere becomes... Um, I, I, I embrace the left hemisphere in a different way and now it's not, it's not an other. Um, ah, more about that later. Okay, so Enneagram eddies, neuroscience and the hemispheres. Related to these two streams is this beautiful idea from human design. And oh my gosh, the, ugh, the human design system is so fucking beautiful. Yeah. Uh, um, the language of it, the 
I, if you don't know the human design system and you're open to something new, I mean, if you're not listening to me, if you're not open to something new, I've already lost you. If you're, if you don't know the human design system, if you know it a little bit, um, I would suggest you go get your chart, uh, go to jovianarchive.com. I'm sure you can find a chart somewhere else, but that's the, that's the classic. Go there, start poking around, watch videos, do find, find information that whatever way it comes best to you. And, um, I hope you enjoy the deep dive. It is, a an endless black hole of information. So you don't have to do the, f- you can't get to the bottom. So don't try to get to the bottom. But um, if the human design system lights you up, I am so excited about that. Uh, yeah. Okay, so there's this idea from human design that um, your mental authority, your mind is not for you. It's not It's not an authority for you. It Other people can get wisdom from your mind coming out your mouth, your expressions, your behaviors, whatever. Um, but your, your, your mental processing is not an authority for you. We have deeper authorities in our body and that's different for different people. Um, mine is splenic sacral, sacral primarily, but, um, splenic sacral, those come together. Um, and my mind is, is, an ally, a good team member, but you know, sometimes it wants to be the captain. Sometimes it wants to run the show. And I have to say, Oh, that's, you're not running my show. You're here for other people or you're here to serve my big self. And we just have a, have a conversation and say, um, yeah, you're not actually the leader. Sometimes, sometimes it thinks it is. Sometimes other people want it to be my leader. Um, and that's, that's interesting. Okay. So Human design mapping to neuroscience, not my authority, mental self, big self. So I mentioned in my Instagram that I have been on an odyssey. I went on a a, like full epic hero's journey since my last recording. And it's been over a month. I want to say it's been like six weeks since my last recording. Um, I went on quite a trip physical journey from where I live in Idaho down to Southern California. It's a long drive. And there's a lot in that story that I want to tell, but it feels there there are other people involved. I want to respect their privacy as I share my thoughts and feelings and experiences. It involves other people's as well as everything does, but it's still raw and they're, um, yeah, I want to respect their privacy. I want to respect this unfolding, these unfolding tendrils that are all part of this story of my trip. So I will tell that story or other layers of that story later on. But one of the strings in that story and that yarn ball um, involves Mother's Day. I was traveling on Mother's Day. Um and that brought up Mother's Day a year ago, Mother's Day 2021. So that's one thread through this story is the Mother's Day connection. And I realized that I'm not ready to tell the story of Mother's Day 2022 yet. I do want to tell that story. It's part of this, this odyssey. Um, but I don't know if you just heard my stomach rumbling. I'm a little bit hungry. 
I want to tell the story of Mother's Day 2021, and that is a whole other ball of yarn, but I'm just going to pull out one thread. Maybe a few threads, we'll see. So this is a story that I want to tell that's part of more going forward and also just part of you getting to know me, me sharing who I am. And also it uh, might be, we'll see how I tell it, might be a good illustration of the groundwork that I just laid. So um, on Mother's Day 2021, I think it was May 9th, a Sunday as Mother's Day is, I was in, I started the day in Barstow, California, and I don't know where I ended the day. Could be in Idaho, um, could have been somewhere in Utah, but uh, I was on a road trip going in the opposite direction from the desert of Southern California to um, my small hometown in the mountains of Idaho. And I was caravanning with my mom and eight months pregnant with my daughter, my first and only child at this point. Um, yeah, a quick flash forward to Mother's Day 2022. I was not caravanning, sharing a vehicle this time on my way down to California from Idaho with my mom again and my um, now 11-month-old baby slash toddler transitioning. She's still my baby. So uh, interesting parallel there, interesting um, spiral. Another point, same, or uh, later time, same point. I don't know. The spiral makes sense to me. I'm sure it does to you too. So getting back to Mother's Day 2021, May 9th. um, I was caravanning up to Idaho after having left the father of my daughter, my daughter's father, the day before. And I had been crying a lot of that drive. I was driving in my little sedan ahead of my mom, most of the time ahead of her, kind of leapfrogged a little bit, but she was in her little SUV pulling a little U-Haul trailer with all my books, most of my books and some other most important belongings. And we were leaving um, so that I could give birth in Idaho and start my daughter's life there. The week before, so for months, things had been feeling wrong. Not with my pregnancy. My pregnancy felt great. I couldn't have imagined how happy and sweet it would feel to be pregnant. I had an idea of it, but um, yeah, so that felt right. But everything around me felt wrong. That was the only thing that felt right. And I found rightness every day. I'm really good at adapting and finding the positive in any situation. Just ask my friends. I think it, I can do it to a fault. I hear over and over and over again, and I'm learning about that. Um, but 
as I was getting closer and closer to actually giving birth or to the due date, because, you know, it could happen anytime, but um, I realized that I, that it was so untenable. The situation was not right for giving birth. It was not right for bringing a baby into the world. I didn't have the support I needed. Um, and it felt unsafe. It was unsafe. It's unsafe to bring a baby. No, I'm not going to make a general statement. I knew it was unsafe for me. I knew the, the sense of safety and support that I needed to bring her into the world and to bring me through that experience, to bring us through that experience of giving birth. And I knew that I didn't have it. So my mom, hearing that sense in me over, you know, some updates, um, she came down for a weekend. She drove down for a weekend to ostensibly help me create a structure of more support. And that meant changing my living situation, getting organized, trying to figure out how I could build a, a sense of safety in a place that felt unsafe and unsupportive. I hadn't been in Southern California long this time. It's kind of a second home for me, but um, this time I moved down when I in December when I was already a couple months pregnant and a few months pregnant, I guess, or end of December, early January, and had not been able to establish a sense of support um, on any level, but was working really hard too. And, you know, like I said, I still had a sense of internal safety, of internal rightness with my daughter, but we were just, we were a floating island of that, um, that sense. So my mom came down to help and what became clear was to me um, and to her and, you know, being reflected as I talked through it um, and looked through eyes and th at that particular time at my environment, what became clear was it wasn't possible to create the sense of safety and support that I needed in that place at that time. So um, I made the decision to come to Idaho. My mother invited me to come home and said that she would she would be my support person, that I would have the safety and love and support that I needed up there. And I knew that to be true. So I felt that to be true. So my big self felt that to be true. My thinking self, my left brain, um, needed to crunch some more numbers, needed some more information. So my mom connected me to a couple women she knew, young women who had recently given birth in the valley um, and I reached out to them to hear what it was like to give birth there, what the hospital system was like, what doctors they recommended, if they knew midwives and doulas and just kind of what, what the, get the lay of the land from a, um, social resource, community resource kind of perspective. And what they said made sense to my big self. It said, yep, 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 yep. And my left hemisphere said, okay, I can, I think I can sign off on this, even though I'm not really asking, but it does need, it really wants to be the one that signs off on things. So, um, I got that information, check, 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 check. Feels good. Feels good. Feels good. Um, and I still knew that this would be an incredibly painful process because I would be leaving my daughter's father and, 
cutting off a stream of possibilities that I had been looking, trying to open up for a while, that my left hemisphere especially wanted to be open, which was this sense of um, being a nuclear family, of having my daughter's parents together and that being a harmonious, supportive, loving situation. But that just wasn't true. It's just that's what society wants wanted to be true that's what the cultural pressure wanted and my left hemisphere works really hard to sometimes um works really hard to make my life align with the cultural norms so I was cutting that off and that's really painful um I knew it was going to be painful and I knew it was going to be really painful for my daughter's father and that it would be painful for me feeling that pain, feeling his pain. And I went through it. I went through all of that. And I cried and cried and cried on the drive after telling him, after packing up my U-Haul trailer, after packing up my car and my mom's car and, and starting the caravan north, I cried and cried and cried. And I had this deep, deep sense My big self knew I was doing the right thing. And my thinking self was really working, doing the work to understand, to get in line. Um, Not to get in line, that doesn't sound right, but to, to to make sense, to make a new story. My big self had the story. My deep self had the story, the knowing that this was right. But my left hemisphere was, was really hurting that this was, um, something kind of going against the culturally prized norm. Okay, so. (sighs) One thing for me that has been so important in, hmm, that's hard to finish, that is so important, is having people around who know me, who really know me. And the more, this is more motivation for being myself and being authentic and um, less protected, less um, differently, less filtered, differently filtered, more open, less hidden. The more I am myself, the more the people around me can know me and reflect that back to me in moments when my my left hemisphere is all mixed up when I'm mixed up, when I'm making a really hard decision or a really big decision that doesn't feel easy. Um, when I'm struggling, when I get the spins, um, the people who really know me, who have gotten to really know me can reflect that back to me and return me to my big self. So my mom is one of those people who really knows me in a lot of ways and over the last year, she's gotten me to gotten to know me in other ways, in deeper ways, and you know, that'll keep going forever. But she knew me enough to reflect back to me my deeper self, my my big self, my soul um, in that decision. So as much as I sobbed and I stopped and I asked mom, "Am I doing the right thing?" I asked myself, "Am I doing the right thing?" And I said, I don't, I just don't know. I did know. And she knew that I knew. And she was able 
to not not say yes, just yes, but to really kind of reflect what I had shared with her and the the really strong, true, powerful, deep sense of things that I'd been communicating to her over months and years that were culminating culminating in this decision. And she was so gentle and so kind and so strong in doing that, um, that it kept me on the road. It kept me going toward where I was supposed to be. And two of my dearest, closest, longest friends, um, were also there for me remotely. Um, I'd let them in on what I was doing on this decision that I was making and they could not have been more supportive and also had heard my process in different to different degrees in different ways over the months and years beforehand. So they were able to reflect that back to me too. And I needed them, um, all three of them. Oh, I'm getting really hungry now. I'm almost done. Okay. So I got to Idaho a day or two later or maybe that night, like I said, I don't remember the timing of it. And the wildflowers were just starting to bloom. But I didn't know that yet. Um, But I knew that the closer I got to my hometown, to where my mom lives, to where I live now, um, I felt this sense of home in such a big way, in a way that I, I hadn't felt here before. Well, yeah, I hadn't been this me here before. But I really, I felt a sense of safety and that I was in the right place. I just knew it. My whole body knew it. I just settled. And my left hemisphere still took some time to to let go of all the stories that it had been trying to create of my possible futures before. But I just kept getting more and more validation and comfort and feelings of rightness. And I couldn't have felt this way if I hadn't had an experience a couple years earlier, a childhood friend of mine died suddenly and unexpectedly in a car accident in 2019 in the summer. And I came home to honor her with the community and reconnected to one of my friends, my my two close friends who were so supportive and, and in, in this process with me. Um, she was there to honor our childhood friend with me and at that funeral that memorial time I felt for the first time that I might be able to live here again and that surprised me because I this is a complicated place for me I think anywhere you go through adolescence becomes a complicated place because that's such a complicated time and I left my hometown when I was 15 Um, I went to boarding school, so it stopped being my primary home and became my family's home. And I hadn't lived here since then, so it always stayed in that complicated space of when I left it, which was as a 15-year-old. And it was a hard place, and I, I had a lot of difficulty going through that complex time in a complex time in my family in a small town. And I kind of felt haunted by my adolescent experience and how I thought people viewed me as an adolescent and all my most, you know, difficult, shameful, 
cringy, wincy memories from adolescence just kind of went everywhere with me around this town until that memorial time, until June of 2019. And I was interacting with people from my childhood and from my adolescence, which before I would have been so scared to do. But I think because of the reason I was there, the beauty of honoring a beautiful life and somebody who was so important to me, it changed things. And I had done, I had grown so much in the interim and become a different person, I felt like for the first time I was here as an adult, not as an adolescent. I wasn't stuck in those hard memories. And I could meet these people from my early life as who they are now too, that I was releasing them from how I saw them in adolescence. So that laid the groundwork for me coming home two years later to give birth to my daughter and to feel home, and to feel safe, and to feel like I could be me here. I could bring a new life in here. And then the wildflowers bloomed, and I hiked every day, and walked every day, and saw the lupin. They're coming to mind the most, the beautiful yellow and purple lupin everywhere. Mm. Maybe I'll share a picture of that. Oh. So now I'm here in Idaho a year later and this is home for now. And I I don't know that I could be happier right now, which feels just amazing to say. And I want all of my past selves to hear that. I think I'll spend some time after I hang up with you and this recording Um when I get the chance over the next hours and days to go back into my younger selves that I carry around with me and let them know how happy I am, how supported I am, how safe I am, how my daughter and I are in a place of so much beauty and resonance and how grateful I am and let them know that we'll get here, that it'll be okay, that they'll get here. And I think they all knew that. They all knew that I would get to a space like this someday and feel this, feel this, but um, I want to give them the concrete details, the felt sense of it. So I'm looking forward to that. <sighs> Maybe next time I'll talk about Mother's Day 2022, that aspect of the Odyssey. Maybe it'll be something else. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for listening. And um, hmm. I wanted to tell you at the beginning a little bit about where I am today, and I didn't. So to end, I'll tell you that the tree outside my window, I'm in my bedroom, <laughs> in my cozy robe because my cozy sweatshirt wasn't with me at the time, but I have this big fluffy robe and it's still a little bit chilly, but it's almost summer now and the tree outside my window has gone through its full bloom. There's still some white flowers on the tree, but mostly they've turned and um, the birds are starting to visit it more. Soon it will have berries and then it will have 
I don't know, a, a dozen different species of birds all coming to feast on the berries and squirrels and everybody, everybody comes to the tree and it becomes, it's just magical. I get treated to this right outside my window. I don't know the name of the tree and I've been wondering for quite a while, but I don't think I need to know the name yet. I mean the species. I haven't named the tree, the individual. It's just the tree outside my window. Oh, the sky is blue and I don't see any clouds and there's a strong breeze and there are tiny baby pine cones on all of the pine trees or spruces. I'd like to know more about the names of trees and the species. My left hemisphere would and the other part of me is like, they don't need names. Not to experience them. Not to commune with them. So, yeah. There's pine pollen or pine cone pollen just filling the air right now. I can see it in gusts in the breeze. And it has layered on there's a veneer of it, if that's the right word, a light layer over everything in my room that is so fine. I don't even necessarily know it's there, except the places where it piles up and it's yellow. But unless I put my hand, finger on something and can feel that fine dust, I may not even know it's covering it. But it really, it's on everything. This happened last year too. I call it pollen week. And pollen week comes right after cotton week when the aspens and the poplars release all their cottony seeds and it just it's like it's snowing if I I think I, I have video and pictures of it from last week and maybe I'll share those too so that's where I am today and I hear my happy baby toddler daughter downstairs um hmm. I'm gonna go make myself a little something to eat I think and get some water and Hmm, close this now. Okay, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. One last thing. The music in this episode is from the song Five by Sleeping At Last. I use it with the generous permission of Sleeping At Last. If you want to know more about the song and hear it in its entirety, go check out the Sleeping At Last podcast, episode number one. 13 called five and the Enneagram. This episode was produced by me and I appreciate you bearing with me as my skills develop. In the meantime, you get to hear a human being human unedited or minimally edited. You're welcome. More soon. Monica. Monica.